Well, if you've been with us since January, we have been walking through um, some of the ways that just define us as a church body of when we gather, what is vital? How does the scriptures direct us to worship? And we've been considering those things. And the reality is you've experienced them this morning, right? You've heard the word read as Mark began there in Psalm 8. And we responded by praying the word, right? We responded to that word. And then Brother Todd came and they began to lead us as we sang the word and we had time there again after that that we stopped and we paused and we read again the word in 1 Corinthians 10 and we prayed the word in response as we confessed our sins. And then we came again singing the word and again from Acts chapter 2, we all as a church read the word together and we sang the word in response. And then now we came and heard Acts chapter 1 or Acts, yeah, Acts 1 8. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say Acts chapter 2, but I was like, man, that's not right. And so, and we read that word and then we prayed the word and so if you've seen right we're continually reading the word praying the word singing the word but that's not all there is now we come to the time where we begin to hear the word preached we preach the word so we've been walking through those things and so read the word preach the word pray the word sing the word and now we come to the fifth and last see the word today is a time right that's unique and as we consider seeing the word because when you think about reading the word or praying the word or preaching the word or singing the word Your sense of hearing is engaged, but there's something unique about seeing the word. You see, when you think about baptism and the Lord's Supper, you're you're literally seeing things happen. The word coming to life. You're, You're tasting today of the word. You'll be touching the word as we think through that, right? You'll some way smell the word, right? Your senses are engaged differently when it comes time to see the word as you think through baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we ask, well, why are baptism and the Lord's Supper so important? They're what called commands or ordinances. These are things that Jesus commanded us to do, to baptize those who have responded to the gospel, to continue to come and gather around this table, commemorating his life and his death, burial, and resurrection, and proclaiming those things, he says, until he comes. It's a declaration, Lord, you are coming again. You see, it's a time as we experience these things, they're what called sacraments. They're these signs, these new covenant that kind of reminds us and also assures us of God's promise. It reminds us as we see baptism and partake of the Lord's Supper that our God indeed does love us. He's promised us that. He's assured us of the fact that for us who have repented and believed and have confessed, and as we sang that song there, let us take it together as we have bowed not only our physical needs, but our hearts in submission to this word and to the sacrifice unto Christ. Then we ourselves are experiencing this sacrament, this, this assurance, this promise of what our Savior has done on our behalf. And so what's interesting, though, is as we consider baptism and the Lord's Supper, these beautiful moments that bring the church together, as we look to the church at Corinth today, it's actually what divided them. The very things that were set to unite them, baptism and the Lord's Supper, these sacraments that Jesus has given us, these ordinances, these commands that Jesus has committed to us to do, the very thing that should unite the church was dividing the church. I don't know how it applies to you. Maybe you'd say, Blake, I have no problem. But the reality is both of these, baptism and the Lord's Supper, cause us to consider and search deeper, to contemplate our relationships with one another, to consider today, do you have any issues with others in this church body? 
Who are you bitter with or at odds with? Again, as we consider it, it's, may not be another church member per se. I mean, they may be a member, but it could be the very person that you rode to the church with. And so these, these moments cause us to pause and consider. And Paul says, guys, I want to remind you. And he points them back to the word. and He points them to Christ saying to us that, guys, let us remember this, that in baptism, it unites the one person to the many. And then when it comes time to partake of the Lord's Supper, the many are united into one. Both of these are significant reminders. Again, how does one person become a part of the body? The Bible says it's through baptism. But how do the many remind themselves that they are actually one? The Bible says it's through the Lord's Supper. So today we're going to look here in 1 Corinthians. And again, this is a church that's blessed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that you guys have every spiritual gift. I mean, that is an amazing church, right? Can you imagine you show up in a church where they have every spiritual gift and they're being exercised? The promise problem was that they were exercising the gifts for their own glory and their own good. Overlooking others. And so they were divided on things like baptism or their views on sex and marriage. They were divided over food and what had been sacrificed to idols. As we mentioned already, the spiritual gifts are something that takes place that actually creates war and and these moments of pride and arrogance as they battle each other in the church. And then the resurrection. Paul says they're even divided over the resurrection. Some are saying it's already happened and there's all this division. And Paul compels them, guys, listen, you're missing the heart of what God has called you to do. It's really simply love God, love God people they were failing to love their neighbor as their self they were a gifted church but they were a self-centered church a church that was prideful and arrogant and so paul guess what calls them back to the gospel back to the word and two of the ways he does that is by looking at baptism and the lord's supper so let's begin there looking now at baptism in baptism you the one are united with the many in baptism you one right you're an individual But you come forward, and this is how you are ushered into the church, that you are united with the many. Let's look, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So Paul is in the midst of a larger section of chapters 11 through 14. He's talking to them about their church gathering. He says, when you guys come together as a church, he says, actually, it's not for the better, but for the worse. And and the reason is, is because they've been divided on all these different components of worship and all the things that are happening. And one of those was, it was about baptism and the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, he talks with them about how they come together. And he says, listen, there's rich people in the church and they come together and they're eating all the food and they've got all this, they're actually getting drunk. And then there's the poor that are in the church. They don't have that. And so there's this big chasm that's being divided. And he says, my table is what should unite you. But instead, it's dividing you. And so Paul is writing in the midst of this, compelling them, urging them, reminding them, brothers and sisters, let us not forget that what unites us is greater than anything that divides us. That's a word for the church today, right? That what unites us in this place is greater than anything that divides us. 
despite your view on masks or mandates, despite your view on politics, I want to remind and urge us all, beloved, what unites us is this word and the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look around. You're amongst family. Today, this is the body of Christ who has gathered. And so Paul urges them and he compels them, beloved, don't forget that we, although are many, we are one. But again, Paul already, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you look there for a moment, he's, he's discussing with them about this division. Listen to what he says. Paul has heard a report in verse 11. He says, it's reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. You guys are fighting, you're arguing, you're mad at each other. My brothers, what I mean is, is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas, which is another name for Peter, or I follow Christ. And Paul is perplexed. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius. And then he recounts a few others that maybe he baptized. But he he says, guys, I want you to realize that you're arguing in the church about who's most important based upon who baptized you or who you're following. He says, no, guys, baptism was created to unite us. It's to bring the one to the many. And so Paul, again, back here in 1 Corinthians 12, that's what he's talking about. He says again in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, again, he's saying, guys, this body is one. So how does someone become a part of this? Well, he says, guys, I want you to know that it's like our physical bodies, right? Consider about your physical body today. You have arms and hands, you have feet and toes, and you have noses and, or nose, right? Noses, not noses. You have eyes and nose, right? Ears. You have all these things, but guess what? Just by themselves, they they don't constitute a person. It's the fact that they're united. It causes us to be one. And notice what he says. Just like this physical body that we have has many parts, but actually it becomes one. Notice his statement. So it is with Christ. The question is, how does one person become a part of the many? How do all this work together? Paul says, look what he says in verse 13. Four. Right. Here's the basis of his argument. Right. So this is how he's proving what he said to you. This is reminding you how in the world did I as one become a part of the many? How does this work together? How are we unified? He says for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So Paul here again ushers in this idea of one spirit, one spirit. And he says that it took place right as as we were all baptized again so we had that statement there of being baptized into one body and that we were made to drink all of us were made to drink of one spirit what's paul talking about he's talking about the baptism of the holy spirit most likely right and so paul is saying to them right he's talking about this moment of conversion he's saying at the moment of conversion i want you to know that you were baptized into one body there was something happening supernaturally that took place at your moment of conversion it is a work of god's holy spirit this one spirit It's as if you took and you drank of it, right? I mean, God is coming to indwell you. It's just as we read in Acts chapter 2 earlier, verse 38, right? The people are cut to the heart and they cry out, what must we do to be saved? Verse 37, and the people, and Peter responds, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. 
right? It's just this reminder of how do we receive the Spirit. And, and Paul, later in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, he says clearly, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you are not in Christ. It's clear. Paul says, listen, I want to be very direct with you. If the Holy Spirit does not indwell you, you are not a part of the body of Christ. Romans 8 and 9. And so Paul here now in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is is talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, listen, I, I want you to know that there's something, there's a connection to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this invisible act with the visible act of baptism. And the point is, is that when someone comes forward and they're baptized, it's a visible action. What? That declares what? That someone's experienced the invisible action of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we can't see, right? The Holy Spirit coming and descending upon that person. But man, what we can see is that person coming forward and being baptized. That they're making the testimony of, hey, listen, I've done what Peter called us to do. I've repented turning away from what I delighted in and what I enjoyed. And now my joy and treasure is in Christ. All my hope is in him. Literally, as we sing again, looking to the rising sun, singing those words, oh Lord, have mercy on me. As I was singing those words, I was hearing that man call out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David. That's a declaration of the heart. But baptism is this moment again, this of the Holy Spirit is an invisible act, but it's the believer who comes forward being baptized that, that now this visible act is taking place. As Pastor Bobby Jameson says, that baptism acts like our passport. Right? It, it affirms the fact that we are actually members, that we are those who are citizens of the United States of America, I assume for all those in this room. And so in the same way, right, our baptism is our stamp saying that I become a member of a new kingdom. In fact, as you think about those who are not naturally born citizens, they come in and they have to take tests and affirm different things. And then there's this swearing in ceremony. Baptism in some way is that, right? It's this moment when we come forward and we're making a declaration saying, I'm now a part of a new kingdom. And praise God, it wasn't anything I did. I didn't earn or deserve to be a part of this kingdom The kingdom that is coming where there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Everything like that is all passed away. That's the kingdom that's coming. And the good news is that none of us are good enough to earn or deserve that on our own. It is simply a work of the grace and the mercy of our God. That's the kingdom, beloved. And baptism is your passport to that kingdom. Your baptism is your swearing in ceremony, so to speak. But listen. As you consider, again, as someone coming forward to get their, bat, or their, their passport or their swearing-in ceremony, the reminder is, is that not simply is that person acting, but the United States of America is acting and affirming, saying, hey, you, you've come forward now. You're, you're agreeing to these certain things. You've gone through and affirm. You understand these things. We're now stamping you as a citizen of the United States of America. In the same way, as someone comes forward making that good confession, following Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection, which baptism represents... In the church, you, you are making an affirmation. Brother or sister, I hear your testimony. And based upon the truth of the gospel, we believe that you are now one of us. It's a major moment as we think through that, right? I mean, listen, baptism is, it's someone, when someone is baptized in our church, the church is affirming that this person's faith is genuine to the best of our understanding and knowledge. I mean, isn't baptism and this, as we're talking about what Jesus commissioned us to do, 
I mean, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Well, how do we know who are disciples? Well, Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples doing what? Baptizing them. Right? And we are to teach. But baptism is this marker to say that those who have heard this gospel and what we're proclaiming about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and our sinfulness and God's holiness and these truths that we can never save or rescue ourselves, that we are in danger of the judgment and wrath of God that is to come upon the world. But we can be saved by no action of our own, but trusting in His perfect life in our place, His substitutionary death, suffering God's judgment for us. Those who hear this gospel and believe on it, Jesus says that they are to be baptized and welcomed into the family of God. Consider for a moment what happens here at someone's baptism. First, realize that it happens usually on Sunday morning. Why? Because that's when the church is gathered. Right? We don't perform like, hey, private baptism on a Tuesday night or Thursday morning or whatever. Why? Because we realize that there's something happening corporately that takes place. This isn't just your individual special event. No, yes, you're acting, but guess what? We are all acting in this. We're all a part of your baptism. Affirming and saying, brother, sister, we welcome you. Then consider this. There's typically a brief testimony that person shares about what their life was like before and what brought them to that place of repentance and faith in Christ and now how their life has looked differently. Followed up, guess what? The body of Christ hearing their testimony and people then begin to encourage them and give them words of encouragement or scriptures are being shared or just impelling them, stay faithful, keep trusting in Christ. After this, the person then is baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're buried with Christ and raised to walk in the newness of life. And as they come up out of the water, the church begins to applaud and clap and celebrate. Why? We're saying, brother, sister, welcome to the family. We are glad that you are here. Praise God that your soul has been redeemed. And then, right, one of the pastors will come forward and Ask us to extend our hand out and say, listen, join us. We're going to now pray over this new brother or sister in Christ. And we spend a few moments just praying over them, asking God to lead and guide them. And then in the service, what do we do? We bring them forward. And we invite you to come. And guess what you do? You stay after. You don't run off to lunch. And even though it may put you further back in line, you realize that something's more important than lunch. And so you stay after and you come forward and you shake their hand or give them a hug and say, brother, sister, welcome home. Welcome to the family. I'm going to be praying for you. I'm glad that you're here. I'm going to compel you to keep staying faithful to the gospel. You see, all these things are unfolding in this moment. Baptism is this time when the one becomes a part of the many. Do you see how it should unite us? How it should cause us all to celebrate? But it's a reminder, too, as a church, this is why we celebrate believers' baptism. Why? Because only a believer can repent and believe. They need to hear and understand the gospel and experience, again, as Peter says, that conviction, that being cut to the heart. And they call out to Christ, save me. And so the church is then coming, welcoming that believer as a part. So as we think about it, maybe thinking about the church as a house. That baptism acts as that front door, so to speak, as those who come and repent and believe on the gospel. The church affirming, hey, listen, this confession appears to be true and genuine. Now we now welcome this brother or sister into our family, to the family of God. Baptism acts as a front door, but we don't just stand. I don't, again, I assume when you invite people to your home, you don't sit there and talk to them at the front door for like 30 minutes or an hour or two hours. Hopefully you invite them to come and sit down. 
And the church now, as Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he compels the church to come and sit down, gathering around the table to eat together in what's called or known as the Lord's Supper. You, you may have heard it, again, defined as the Eucharist or different services, right? Call and talk about it different ways. But again, I think this truth comes forward, right? Again, so baptism functions as the one person now becomes a part of the many. But as we gather this table, the many of us now become united as the one in the Lord's Supper. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we, the many, are united in to one. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As we rewind back, right, earlier in our time of confession and repentance, we, we discussed Paul's words here, reminding them of, of all the things that had happened in the past. And then he begins to unite them or compel them to remember what Christ has done on their behalf. If we walk further in 1 Corinthians 11, right, you would hear Paul talking more about the Lord's Supper. But again, it's, he's saying, guys, I want you to know that there's something happens that's special in this moment as we partake, as you see the word, right, as you feel it in your hand, as you raise it and taste it with your mouth or you smell it, as you digest it, it's happening, something unique of seeing the word. And so listen to verse 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we see the word through the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So there's something that happens in the Lord's Supper that's unique. And Paul says it's actually a participation in the blood and in the body of Christ. It's as you take of that cup and that, that, that bread, you are, are making a declaration to your own soul this is my only hope of righteousness. This is it. This is what is my sanctification. This is my only plea before God. It is not my good works. I want to be really clear. As we come forward today to partake of the Lord's Supper, it is not a declaration about our own good works, but about His good work. It is our hope and righteousness. Now, consider this. As you partake of the Lord's Supper today, contemplate this. As you'll look to your left and your right and you'll see other brothers and sisters raising that cup to their lips, you're going to see some godly saints in this place who have lived faithful for a long time. And their declaration unto you in that moment is, brother or sister, I want you to know that my only hope in life and death is the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ on my behalf. And then you're going to look to your left and your right and you're going to see another brother or sister who's maybe weak and stumbling and struggling at this moment. But, but praise God, they are still a saint of God. Listen to that. Saints aren't the special holy people in this congregation. No, all those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Word of God says they're saints. So that brother or sister next to you, yes, there may be moments in weakness as compared to maybe as we think about those who have longed well and long with the Lord. But as they partake of that cup, and as we look left and right, it says to us, the ground is indeed level at the cross. Brother or sister, we both are hoping and trusting not in our own works, but in His work on our behalf. Do you see how it unites the church? It compels us. It keeps us humble. It keeps us hopeful. It causes rejoicing. It's a participation in the blood of Christ, in the body of Christ. And it reminds us what unifies us. It is the work of Christ on our behalf. So Paul says, listen, as we get right vertically, right, with the Lord, then guess what, guys? We should be getting right with one another. That's what he says, verse 17. Because there is one bread. And there, here's Paul's main point. We who are many are one body. 
for we all partake the one bread. So Paul says, listen, the main point is this. We who are many are one body. And the reason why is he says two different things again, but it's basically the same thing, but he says it twice. One, he says, because there is one bread. And then he says, for here's the reason we all partake of the one bread. He's saying, guys, it's the oneness of what happens here that reminds us that, oh, we are many. We are actually one. It's what unites us. Now, now let's be really clear. Unless we press this too far. It's Christ who unites us. It's Christ. Christ is the one who unites us, right? Who, who, who brings that together. So we shouldn't think today, well, dude, we got like these individual packets, bro. Like I thought we we're supposed to be eating like a one bread, one cup like that. It doesn't seem to be working. No, it's Christ, right? That, that moment, but it's symbolic, representing the oneness. So as we all share again in the bread and as we all in unity, right, partake of that cup, it is a reminder of our, our oneness, of the one or the many becoming one. And that's what Paul says, we who are many are one body. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's a time that should humble us, unite us as a church. So Paul is just compelling that, but he, it's also, guys, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's a dividing line between us and the world. It's a declaration that what we do in this side, this place, is a declaration of our unity to Christ. Right? We won't walk into the restaurant today and say, hey, everybody, let's take the Lord's Supper. No, it's not. It, it happens in this place. There's something significant and unique about the local church that is gathered together, who is covenanted together, who is holding fast to the scriptures together. It is in this place with these brothers and sisters who God has brought in here together to be a family that we partake of this table together. And Paul says that's what makes us, though we are many and diverse, right? He says that even though there may be Jews or Greeks, those who are so far, ethically, religiously, their background, all these things, those who are slaves or those who are free, right? As he he talks in Ephesians about that being male or female, right? He says it's one. Christ has come to bring us one. He's tore down the dividing wall of hostility. God has brought us together as one. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that's our declaration. This week as I was studying reading, I came across a good analogy I thought was helpful. We think about the Lord's Supper in some ways, maybe like an air filter, right? Consider the filter, right? Whether it's in your car or you think about your HVAC at home. The reality is that filter is designed to do something. It's designed to catch pollen or bugs or muck or whatever comes through there. Why? So then you have clean air to breathe in your car, your home. But the reality is over time, you should change them. You should, okay? I'm not very good at those things, but I'm, I'm just telling you, you should. So if you haven't done it, this is your public service announcement, right? You need to check it. But the point is, right, the Lord's Supper acts in a way to say to us as we come together regularly that the muck of division, the muck of bitterness and disgruntledness with that person or that one, or the looking down at our noses at that person there that's not, or that person who feels just unworthy to even be a part of the body. No, the Lord's Supper says, Come! Let's gather together. We who are many are one because of our Lord and Savior's death in our place, His burial, and praise God, His glorious resurrection, His ascension back to the Father, and one day soon, one day soon, the trumpet shall sound, the voice and the shout of the archangel, and the Lord Himself will come down out of the clouds to gather His body back home. 
And this table, Paul says, that as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are making that proclamation. You are saying with John in the final words of Revelation 22, the last book, the last chapter, come, Lord Jesus, come. Those are the final words of Scripture. As you participate in this table today, you are making that declaration. I want to compel us again. As we partake of this Lord's Supper, as we look around that table at one another, we are affirming to one another, brother or sister, I see evidence that what you professed at your baptism, you are continuing to live. You see, that's what's happening. So it's an assurance moment as we gather around this table together. Other brothers and sisters are saying, brother, sister, I see you. I see your life. I want you to know that I see the work of God in you. I see God changing and transforming you. But that assumes that we're holding one another accountable. I want to compel and urge you. This is part of what Sunday nights are about. I want to urge you tonight, 5 o'clock Central, come. We're going to eat together. And then we'll sing together. And then we'll talk about the Word of God together. We'll pray together. And then for the last little bit, the men will break up with men and women will break up with women and we'll ask one another a couple questions. Are you reading the Word and how's it changing you? Who have you shared the gospel with recently? Brother, sister, is there any area of maybe sin in your life that you just need to confess or acknowledge or maybe you need accountability? And guess what? That may not happen the first week or the first several weeks. We get that. But our hope and prayer is that over time you grow to realize that, hey, as I hear that brother or sister confess, I realize that I may have things I need to confess to. I need accountability in my own life. Over time, that, that relationship begins to build But, beloved, this table assumes that we're doing those things. This table assumes that we're practicing church discipline, where we're holding one another accountable to the Scriptures. That doesn't mean that only perfect people come to the table. No. But church discipline is a way in which the church comes together and says, this brother or sister, after much prayer, after much pleading, they are refusing to repent. They're refusing to give up that way of life and treasure that. And so, brother or sister, we are so concerned for your soul that we are saying now, listen, come into this table. This is a holy matter. If we're not doing that, brothers and sisters, then we are failing to provide the assurance that one another needs and the warning that others need. So might we just take this first step? That as the Lord's Supper comes, we're going to do a better job of communicating that with you all. You heard that in the one call this week. But let it be a time in which it urges your soul to seek out those whom with you are bitter in this body. And that would extend to other believers, but specifically, let's start here in this church. If you are bitter with one another, you need to seek the Lord, asking you to help you forgive that person. So we talk with our boys often, Proverbs 19.11, it's the one's glory to overlook an offense. But there may be things that, guess what, that just require conversation. That you need to talk with another brother or sister to seek out that reconciliation. I want to urge you. This table compels us to examine our relationship not only with God but one another. I want to urge you to seek out that reconciliation. You see, baptism, it unites the one to the many. And this table, the Lord's Supper, unites the many as one. To the unbeliever here tonight, or this morning, maybe it feels like tonight. I want to urge you, as you consider baptism and the Lord's Supper, 
things that you have not yet participated in. I want to just remind you of why we participate. We participate in baptism not because, again, of any good work of our own, but because of his good work on our behalf. You see that we are being buried. Why? Because we know that we could never live the righteous life that God requires. So we are buried just as Christ, our Savior, was buried. But we are raised in his power and in his forgiveness and his love and his redemption is a moment of hope and joy. As you look around this morning, unbeliever, and you see others here who are going to partake of the Lord's Supper, it is a declaration to God, but also unto you, that they are not trusting in their own goodness to get them into God's presence. No, they are trusting in the perfect sacrifice of Christ. So that means that this morning there will be those who are sons and daughters, our grandsons and granddaughters, our friends, our neighbors who may gather around us here who have not yet repented and believed. But your declaration this morning as you raise that bread or that cup to your lips is a call to them. Bow your heart and life and treasure Christ and experience the joy of being forgiven and at peace with God. What a moment of hope. Beloved, we've heard that we are to read the word, we are to pray the word, we are to sing the word, we are to preach the word, but we are also to see the word. And we do that through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for today and the power of your word, the truth of it. God, thank you for what baptism and the Lord's Supper represents. That we don't have to treasure any good work of our own, but what Christ has done on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for living a life that we could never live. Thank you, Jesus, for dying the death that we deserve to die. Thank you, Jesus, for being raised, guaranteeing that we can be forgiven, that we one day will be raised to. Thank you, Jesus, for pouring out the Holy Spirit on those who repent and believe that we can be filled with your Spirit and live a newness of life. Thank you, Jesus, because you alone have made peace with God for us. Now, Lord, let the church celebrate humbly but joyfully baptism, and the Lord's Supper, Lord. I pray that by your Spirit, you will strengthen us to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.